there is an ethic within Judaism to beautify the mitzvah. So therefore, to all of our guests, we invite you to return next week when the Hazan will be here <laughs> to make the mitzvah more beautiful. Baruch Hashem. And my wife said, Amen. <clears throat> to all of our guests, we want to thank you for being here. Baruch Hashem. I see a lot of uh, new faces this morning. It's an honor to have you. I would like to make mention of two special guests this morning. First and foremost, our not, not maybe not so young Daniel Brockington, who is here with us. Baruch Hashem. Stand up. And now member of the United States Army, Baruch Hashem. Presently enrolled in the RLTC program and Bezrat Hashem within four years will receive his commission. And very proud of you, sir, for that. Baruch Hashem. Thank you for your service. And I would like to welcome uh, the Rebetzin's father, my father-in-law, Mr. James Merritt. Very welcome to have you, sir. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. I want to open up with a baraka from the Ari concerning the Torah teaching this morning. May Hashem help us. Ruler of the universe, master of all masters, the father of mercy and forgiveness, we thank you, our God and God of our forefathers, by bowing down and kneeling that you brought us closer to your Torah and to your holy work, and you enable us to take part in the secrets of your holy Torah. How worthy are we that you grant us such big favor. That is the reason we plead before you, that you will forgive and acquit all of our sins, and that you should not bring separation between you and us. And may it be your will, Hashem, our God and God of our forefathers, that you will awaken and prepare our hearts to love and revere you. And may you listen to our utterances and open our closed heart to the hidden studies of your Torah. And may our study be pleasant before your place of honor as the aroma of sweet incense. And may you emanate to us light from the source of your soul to all of our being. And may the sparks of your holy servants through which you revealed your wisdom to the world shine brightly. May their merit and the merit of their fathers and the merit of their Torah and the holiness support us so that we shall not stumble through our study. And by their merit, enlighten our eyes in learning, even as King David said, open my eyes that I should behold wonders of your Torah. Because from his mouth, God gives wisdom and understanding. May the utterance of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart find favor before you and I, my God, my strength, and my Redeemer. Amen. Amen. We'd like for you to open up in the Torah, returning back to Breshit, chapter 28. It's my joy to be with you. Ahmed did a wonderful job these last two weeks, did he not? Baruch Hashem. Amen. Hallelujah. Very glad that I'm here and able to speak this morning. That's, that's the main thing, right? Had a little bit of illness going on, but Hashem, Hashem healed me, and here I am. Hallelujah. Parasha Vayetze. Let me, get my, let me get equipped here with a few resources I'm going to begin with. There we go. <clears throat> I want to begin by reading the first Aliyah, which Amet read in Ivrit, or as we say, Ivrail. It says, Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He encountered, say encountered. encountered. He encountered the place, say the place, the place, and spent the night there because the sun had set. He took from the stones of 
The place. Say the place. The place. Which he arranged around his head and lay down in that place. I want to focus in primarily on the beginning of this parasha, which again, Ahmed read, when he said, Vayetse Yaakov mif'er sheva ve'shelech harana. And then this word, in chapter, in, excuse me, verse 11, it says, Vayifga, Vayifga. He, encount, he, he encountered a place. Now turn, if you will, to chapter 30, 31, Oslika. It's the wrong book. Let's go to the end of the Torah portion, which is 32, I believe. So we have here in chapter 32 and verse 2. Jacob went on his way and angel and angels of God encountered him. So in the Hebrew we have here Vayakov Halach Ledabarko Vayif Geu. The same word. Just a different tense in this case. The angels and God encountered him. In this case, in the, in the beginning sense, Vayivga, Yaakov encountered. And in this last case, the angels encountered Yaakov. So there's a, there's a plurality there. But it's the same word. I was reading uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was reading through some lectures from the Rebbe. And this is talking, talking now about Rebbe Schneerson, formerly the Chabad Rebbe, who passed away in 1994. And he was writing about the the, what, what constitutes Jewishness. Is it Torah observance? If you, if you start keeping all the mitzvahs, does that necessarily make you a, a Jewish person? Halakhically, Judaism would say that you're not a Jew unless you convert to Judaism. So you can, you can keep all the mitzvahs, you can be doing everything, but you're not really Jewish yet. And so, from a Western mind, and I want to encourage us today, because I'm talking about potentially some deep subjects, I'm going to try my best, Bezrat Hashem, to make, make, make the uh, complex understandable, but I want us to understand something, that we have to get rid of two things. With all due respect to our culture and our heritage that belongs to so many, we have to get rid of a, a Western mindset, Amen. and... We have to get rid of, or at least for the time being, set aside a Christian theological mindset. Okay, because you are there is no compatibility between Judaism and Christianity. I used to think there was, but that's because I was under the delusion that there was quote Hebrew roots to Christianity. Now that might have been true in the first century when you could have interpreted the term Christian Christian different. As, but as Amet brought out, there wasn't really a term. There's not a term in the Brit HaDashah, in the writings of the apostles. There's not a term for Christian. It's believer. You're a believer, right? It's one who believes in. And so the Talmud even talked about this week, uh, in tractate Avodah Zarah I was reading about, there was a, a Jewish man, evidently some type of physician, who was coming to heal somebody who was bitten by a snake, and it mentioned there that he, had, had, he was a follower of Yeshua. 
And so there was a discussion about whether or not it was okay for him to treat the man with a snake bite. And some rabbis said no because he's a heretic. But wait a minute. I, don't, I didn't want to get off on this, but since I brought it up, let me mention it. Now, in the Talmud, the Talmud says very little about Yeshua, right? Okay. All right. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. It's the discussion is, the discussion in this particular tractate, and I don't have the exact reference. I wasn't planning to bring it up but necessarily, but in this particular context, they're talking about should you be treated by a Gentile doctor or not? And basically, it boils down to if your life depends on it, yes, but otherwise, you should try to find a Jewish doctor. Like, don't. So then it comes to the discussion of heretics. In this case, somebody, not their point of view, not mine, that you follow, being a follower of Yeshua makes you want a heretic. But in this case, it's a positive distinction with a negative implication. Meaning that in order to be a heretic, you have to be in the covenant. See, Gentiles are already excluded because they're not in the covenant at all. But in order to be a heretic, they have to consider you Jewish. They just don't agree with you. So the question is, can this man treat? And the man who was bitten by the snake wanted to be treated. And his friend said, don't be treated. And he ended, the man ended up dying. Because by the time he, they came to a negative decision, he died. He could have been saved, but they didn't want him to treat, be treated because this particular person who was going to treat him evidently believed that Yeshua was the Messiah, and they considered that a heretical thought, but they did not consider him a Gentile. He was a Jew with a heretical thought. Makes sense? Okay. So it's, it, it, some people might say, well, that's such a negative, but it's really not. It's positive. Here's another positive. You can be a sinner. You say, well, that's negative. Yes, but, in, in, but the ability to sin implies relationship. Right, right. Because if there's no relationship, there's no sin. My wife doesn't get mad at other men for not bringing her flowers on Shabbat. Very true. Wow. Why? Because there's no relationship with another man. But I am not exempt from that. The very fact that she gets mad at me because I don't bring her flowers, which I do, it's an example. The very fact that she gets mad at me implies that we have a relationship that requires action. Amen. And the, fa the fact that I am negative on the side of, of that equation is bad, but at least it, 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 it points out that there's a relationship there. And that's my point today, is the point is about relationship. Relationship with Hashem. And I've simply, we title all of our Torah portions according to the Torah portion, but the subtitle is Makom, the place. The question is, have we encountered the place? So the Rebbe is talking about what to make a Jew a Jew. And so you can look at it and say, well, halakhically, if you don't do conversion, and people look at it with a Western mind or with a Christian mind and say, well, that's too mechanical. What do you mean if I just go through some ceremony, all of a sudden, voila, I'm Jewish, and now if I keep the commandments, they count, words before, they don't. And if you look at it... See, here's what the Western mind likes to do. The Western mind likes to go to the pond and extract the frog from the pond, take the frog back to the lab, and dissect it. We do two things. First of all, we take it from its natural habitat into a scientific cold habitat, and then we kill it. That's religion. 
Judaism goes to the pond and examines the frog in the pond. So that we get the whole picture. Because it's, what good does it do me if I know how the frog looks like on the inside? I need to see the entire picture. The entire matrix of where the frog is. A mikvah, circumcision, and now all of a sudden, voila, you're a Jew. And I would say, yeah, silly little ceremony like a hoopah and a rabbi standing there saying some vows. Because that silly little ceremony, that, let's face it, friends, you're standing under a hoopah, there's somebody there, people are watching. What's the difference? You love him, right? You're already committed to him. Like I was sharing with somebody this uh, last week or week before, that once you get engaged, can y'all still date? No. no. You better say no. no. Like, yeah, that should have been a no. Right? You're, you're betrothed. Bet, you can say in the old English, betrothed one another to one another. So what's the, build, what's the big, it's, it's, a, it's four poles on a piece of fabric. All of a sudden, this magically waves a magic wand over, and now you're, now you're in a relationship? No. But the, the, the desire and the willingness to go through the formal act publicly puts a firm exclamation mark stamp on the fact that you are in a relationship. So the Rebbe would say that if, even if you're Jewish and you're not keeping the mitzvahs, or if you're keeping all the mitzvahs and you're not Jewish, that doesn't make you Jew. What makes you a Jew is relationship, is what he's talking about here. And he's right. Okay? He's right. And this is, I'm going to read you just a few quotes from his lecture. He says, what defines us as Jews is a relationship. Because the Almighty chose us. We're in a relationship. The substance of this relationship... The charter, he writes, is the, its commitment is the Torah itself. That's what defines the relationship. And every relationship has things that define it. Every husband and wife have a charter. They have an oral Torah between them. Many of them, if it's Jewish, you have a ketuvah, but that's kind of the foundation but there's an oral Torah between couples, right? This is what we do. This is how we live. This is our expectation, right? In sickness and health, for better, for worse, right? We don't, uh, we, we want to grow old together and grow gray together and all those kinds of things. He continues and says, it is not observant of the Torah's mitzvah, that is the divine commandments that make one a Jew, but the commitment that the mitzvah represents. It's not the mitzvah itself that makes you Jewish, but the commitment which the mitzvah represents. So just because you put on seed seed and a kippah and walk around town and go to the kosher restaurants, you are not Jewish outside of a relationship with the Almighty God. The fact that you do those things is only articulating to yourself and those who might observe you the relationship that exists. This is why there is a phenomenon, and we've experienced it 
all of us, I should say, all of us experience, you know, thankfully far and few between, but it does happen, where somebody comes into the community, whether it be this one or some other community, and they're hot and heavy. I mean, they're like super Jew. They come in here. They're here for six months. Next thing, they're, they're super Jew. And then something happens. Their car, they don't get the, the, the right car park in the parking lot that they always get, and they stop coming. And then you see them on the street a month or two later, and you would never even know that they ever had visited a synagogue any, any time in their life. Yeah. And they're totally not following God at all on any level. And you think, how can that be? And many of us have had that kind of conversation. How can that be? And I've often looked, at, looked up at the sky and wondered and pondered how in the world, God forbid, God forbid anything should happen to Sar Shalom. I have no idea what I would do because I can't, I just... I don't know what I would do because I basically, I'd have to start a home group again, I guess, because I just, there's this, this is not pretend. So a messianic leader once told me in a meeting years ago, he said, I appreciate what you're doing and in your observance level, because I know you're trying to reach Orthodox Jewish people. And I stopped him. And I said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I am not a missionary and I do not have a mission to Orthodox Jewish people. I'm doing what I do because A, I believe it's the right thing to do, and B, because I love God and I want to be like Him. Amen. That's it. I have no other alternative motive than that. It's not pretend. It's not make-believe. If you come to my house, you're going to see the same rabbi that you see on Shabbat. It's the same thing, right? And, and, and prayerfully, that's true for all of us. That's why the Siddur says that a man should be God-fearing both, both publicly and privately. Right? And if, that's, if you're listening to me, or if you're watching online, and you're listening to me, and you say, well, that's not really me. I, kind of, I put on the gear when I go to synagogue, but otherwise I don't really do this. Then I would say that your problem is not mitzvah keeping. Your problem is relationship. Because I come back to this issue of how did I get here? How did my wife and I get here? How did we get to this point where we started this synagogue so many years ago? What drove us here? And the fact of the matter is, is one simple thing was, is that I had an intense relationship with the God of Israel, and I had, and, I, and the Messiah of Israel, and by his grace, and by his tender mercy, and by his guidance, I had to kind of take the long loop around to figure out that Yeshua not only was Jewish, that's not it, it's not, the Messiah was Jewish, that's not it, he was Jewish. He lived as a Jew. He ate as a Jew. He prayed like a Jew. He dressed like a Jew. He was a Pharisee, in fact. He was a Pharisee in terms of his religious observance level. And there's people who are listening to me right now, and you think that the Pharisee is like next to Hasatan, curse be his name. Pharisee is next in line. You have Hasatan, Beelzebub, Pharisee. Okay. <laughs> That's what you've been taught. It's not true at all. I can, I can prove to you, and about three dozen men in this room can prove to you within five minutes that Yeshua lived a Pharisaical life. I can give you one proof that's undisputable. You want to ready for this? He was invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house. If you are a studier of history, which we are here, you will find that a Pharisee would never, ever, in a million years, ever, ever invite a non-Pharisee to dinner at their house. Ever. 
ever. That would never happen. Secondly, the Pharisees went out to him to find out if he was the Messiah. If Yeshua was not a Pharisee, they would not even ask. Because a Pharisee would never have considered not in a million years, not in a billion light years, not at warp seed, speed to the Seda Alpha 5, would they ever think that the Messiah could come from anybody who wasn't a Pharisee. You see. It's indisputable, okay? So, so the Rebbe is talking here about relationship. This is what I want to hone in on. The mechanics, the mechanics of conversion can be just mechanics if there's no relationship in the same way in which the mechanics of a wedding ceremony can be just mechanics if there's no real relationship there. You cannot exclude the wedding canopy and say, well, it's just mechanical. No, it's not mechanical. If there's a relationship there, if there's a relationship there, it is deeply meaningful and deeply spiritual and long-lasting. We have people here who've been married 20, 30, 40, 50, even longer years together. Their wedding, under a hoop or not, was not mechanical. And my relationship with Hashem is not mechanical. Therefore, this is why I do what I do. This is why I told somebody once before, my wife and I were having lunch with a lady who was from a Christian background, interested in this. And I told her, I said, I find that the people who come into this way of life from the church or from some other means, that typically it's somebody who is red hot on fire for God. Red hot on fire for God. Really, really loves the Lord. Now I'm not talking about red hot on fire for religion because there's a difference. There are people who are really, really, really into the gifts of the Spirit. There are people who are really, really, really into maybe the mechanics of their church. But people who are red hot on fire for God are people who really love God. They're not, they're, they are willing to cast overboard in a second anything they find out is not real or is keeping them from reaching their destination. You tell somebody that, listen, I'm just going to tell you right now, that little thing over there, Constantine made that, and here's the historical proof of it. That little festival over there, I'm telling you, everybody knows it. It's in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Just look it up. It's so simple. They will take that, and like Jonah, they will cast that thing right off the ship. And, not, and they don't cry about it. They don't get upset about it. They might get a little like, oh, wow. That's 20 years of... They might get a little angry at their friends and family, maybe their spiritual leaders. Why didn't you tell me this? Shank them. Don't shank them. Don't get mad at the spiritual leaders, by the way. They don't know what they don't know most of the time. Somebody, I read, I read online something kind of funny that somebody who was a former, former seminary graduate said that he got his bachelor's in parroting. He got a bachelor's in parroting. Parroting, like a parrot. So he, and, and, and from his perspective, from his point of view, he was just trained to say what the next guy said, or the, form, the first guy said. 
but not really to look it up for himself, not really to investigate it. So he was like a parrot. Polly want a cracker, Polly want a cracker. Polly want a cracker, Polly want a cracker. We've got to learn not to parrot. So going back to relationship, look at this. It says, Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He encountered a place. The rabbis uh, interpret this to mean, to take that word, and turn it into a meaning that he prayed there, which is totally, which is valid. But I want to, I want to focus in on the word meaning to meet. Because to encounter is to meet. And he, later in the parasha, he meets angels. So I want to, uh, the King James version, and, and not just limited to King James, the reason I bring that up is because the King James actually aligns with another uh, interpretation from actually the Zohar of this word, which means to light upon. King Jimmy and the Zohar got together that this is the right interpretation. To light upon. I want to show you something else here in this word meaning. It means to strike upon. To strike up against. In fact, the Midrash Rabbah uses that definition in one of its interpretations here. When it says that, um, let's see here if I can find it right quick. He encountered the place. He wished to pass, but he was unable to, to do so because the entire world became like a kind of wall before him. And in the footnotes it says, the Midrash now interprets the verb pay gimel ayin in the sense of to collide with, to strike. That's exactly what it says here. To collide with, with strike. Another, way, another definition of this is to light upon, to meet with, to reach and, and in a good sense, to assail anyone with position, with, uh, excuse me, petitions, to assail. Okay, so I want you to think about this in the sense of meeting the place where Yaakov is, in a sense, assailing upon it. Now, let's think about this before I read this quote from the book of Matthew. <clears throat> because why did, what's, what, what is Yaakov doing? He's really going to the place where his father Isaac was offered, he lays down, puts a stone under his head or around his head, and puts all the other stones around him. And the sages say the stones that he gathered were the stones from the altar that his father Isaac laid upon. So you see this man laying upon the ground of the what will become the temple at Mount Moriah, laying there with stones surrounding around about him. What was he doing? He was there to be an offering. He wanted to be a living sacrifice like his father. He was zealous for the covenant, but that's because he was zealous for the relationship. He was willing to lay down without even being asked to lay down. And so it says he invented the place. And I just said that this word encounter can mean to assail upon. Such as, Amen, I tell you, among those born of women, none has a riven greater than Yochanan the Immerser. Yet the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. From the days of Yochanan the Immerser until now, the kingdom of, of heaven is treated with violence. And the violent grasp hold of it. In other words, this is something that those who are red hot for God take hold of it with passion. To meet God in this place. The question is, have we met him? Have we met him? And where have we met? Where are they meeting? 
They're not meeting in some random place, but they're meeting from the spot from which the Torah will go forth. Moriah, Mount Moriah. That famous passage from Isaiah 2-3 where it says that all the nations, not some of the nations, all the nations will gather because, why are they gathering? Because the word of God will come forth from Zion, from the mountain of God. This is what we're talking about here. So to highlight this concept of relationship, I want to quote a passage here from the Zohar, Vayetze 7-42. It says, the other younger son became, began with the verse, and he lighted upon the place and tarried there. Breshit 28, 11. He asked, what is the meaning of the phrase, and he lighted upon the place? It is similar to the king who goes out to the house of the consort. He needs to gain her favor and please her with substantial things so as to treat her with respect. Even if the king has his own gold bed, with, uh, with lots of embroidered our, our artistry, covers, and bedding. If she prepares a bed of rocks on the ground in a room of fodder, he will neglect his own place and sleep in hers to please her, to harmonize their desires without coercion. As we have learned, as soon as Yaakov went to her, it is written, he took the stones of that place and put them under his head and laid down in the place to sleep. The secret of Nukva, and in this case, Nukva is interpreted to mean the female aspect of God, that is the Shekinah glory of God, to give her pleasure so that even building stones were pleasant to tarry on. In other words, this is talking about relationship, that somebody who meets the place is like a king who has everything, but God says, I want you to get rid of everything and lay down on this stone bed I have. And instead of the king saying, oh, well, I, I'm not going to lay down there. I've got a wonderful bed. Look at my, look at my, 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 my bedspread comes from Dillard's or Macy's or whatever, Neiman Marcus. I have 800 count Egyptian cotton sheets. I know a Jew shouldn't have Egyptian cotton, but come on. Everything is perfect. It's perfumed. It's wonderful. Let's go there. And she says, no, I don't want to go. I want to go right here. You say, well, what kind of, what kind of analogy is this? And the, the analogy is, 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 is this to be explained. Seemingly, what God wants us to do is lay down on a bed of rocks. But he doesn't know, we don't realize that he, he's trying to give us the inheritance of the temple. But if we're not willing to leave what we perceive to be luxury and take what he wants, we don't have true relationship because we don't really want her. And I say her because we're talking about the Shekinah glory of God. God is a male as described in the Bible, of course, but within God there's the male and female aspects of Hashem. <clears throat> he met not a mountain. He met not just any location. He met the place. And the, the name Makom is just that. It's a name. It's a name of God. God is actually called Makom. And so it says here, the, the name Makom in Genesis Rabbah 68 and also in Tractate Abodah Zarah 40b, the name Makom simply means the existence. 
And so, it says in the Kimcha Davshuna, this is a rabbi who's commenting on the Haggadah from Pesach. Interestingly, Makom has talked a lot in the Haggadah. It says, blessed is the place, blessed is he, the Holy One, who is called Hamakom, because God is the place of the world, but the world is not God's place. Similarly, we interpret the verse, see there is a place near me, station yourself on the rock, Exodus 33:22. The verse does not say, I am in the place, but the place is near me. It is a dwelling place, and the place is without a place. Yeah. Furthermore, you will find that the word makom has the same numerical value of God's name if one squares each letter of the divine name. Yod, 10 times Yod is 100. Hey, 5 times 25 is 25. 6 times Vav is 36. Hey, five times hey is 25, is 186, which is the same as makom. So the place is the divine name. Now stick with me. Stick with me. This is, the, what we're talking about here is relationship. Have we met the place? Have we met the divine? Because that's what God is looking for. He's looking for holy sparks, not to just go out and keep Torah, but who want a relationship with us. Listen, our wives or our husbands, whatever side of the fence you're on, we don't want our spouses just to do things mechanically for us. When I was sick last week, my wife was so sweet, coming in, doting on me, doing all this stuff, making me chicken soup. Which I have to say the Jewish accent, chicken soup. So she's making everything for me. Now, if she was just coming in there and throwing, throwing down this chicken soup and throwing a garlic in my way, you know. Coming there, how do you feel? I'm still sick. Hey. That's not love, and that's without making me feel good. But she's coming there, she's patting me. Are you okay? She's praying for me as I'm garlicking that nasty stuff she gave me. We want our spouses to do what they do because they love us, right? This is what God wants. He doesn't want you to wear a tzitzit and keep a, or wear a tekel if you don't love him, if there's no relationship there, and because he knows it won't last. Because the, 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 our spouses know if you're just doing this, you're just vacuuming the carpet because, uh, hey, because she knows that when the next young thing walks by, you'll be like, hey. There's no relationship there. You gotta have a relationship. So it goes on to say in this, in Yalkut Shimoni on the Parashah, he writes this. <clears throat> and he arrived at the place. Why do we use the pseudonym and call the Holy Mosbihi Makom? Because he is the place of the world, and the world is not his place. In other words, God carries the world. He's the place. He's where the world sits. He doesn't sit in the world. This is why, and I don't want to get off into this very, very, very deep and esoteric concept of the divine Messiah. I just want to let you know, Mashiach is divine. Now, there's people who don't wrap their head around that because they're thinking one-dimensionally. And he can't be Messiah because it can't be, he cannot be, quote, God in the flesh. Let's use that term for a second. He can't be God in the flesh, quote unquote, because he's talking to himself. And my answer would be that you 
are not thinking fourth dimensionally. Marty. Now, I don't want to get off on this because I don't pretend to be an expert, but when I was thinking about this concept, I, I, was, I went back and I began to review Einstein's theory of relativity. Because everything is, is affected by time and distance except, guess what? Light. So when you're looking at, let's say, a person in the flesh who is obviously divine, you cannot argue that Mashiach's not divine. I'm sorry. We're, you know, we just can't, you can't go there. You may, may, not, may argue some other stuff, but you can't argue that. So he's looking like he's talking to himself. From our, the theory of relativity is that from our vantage point, something is in motion or what have you, depending on our relative position to it. If we're in the truck, we don't feel like we're in motion. We feel like we're stationary. But if we're outside the truck watching the truck go by, we feel like we're stationary and it's moving. But the answer is we're all moving. Right now we're moving at 1,000 miles an hour because that's how the globe, and it's a globe, is spinning. That's right. That's right. And the, 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 the earth is traveling around the sun at some 67,000 miles an hour. So even when we think we're stationary, we're not stationary. It all depends on our relative to position to the object. So if we are in time and God is not, and we're looking at someone who seems to be talking to himself, but from God's point of view, time doesn't exist. Therefore, he is there but not there at the same time. You say, on me. It's beyond me too. I'm just telling you that we can't look at something and try to use our pathetic, weak just ignorant, carnal mind to try to understand such an esoteric concept. And somehow think that we, and then, and then build ministries around it. As if, we, that, talk about the height of arrogance. I'm not even suggesting that my theory of relativity, it's not my theory, but you know what I'm saying. Don't make it, don't go make a first synagogue of Rabbi Mordecai over that. I, I'm just trying to say that there might be something above us. I'm just going to throw it out there. <laughs> Rabbi Yosef ben Halifta said, We don't know whether the Holy One is the place of the world or the world is this place. From that which is written, behold, there is a place with me. Shemot 33, 21. It appears that he is the place of the world and the world is not his place. Rabbi Yitzhak said, From that which is written, which are the abode for God who precedes all. Deuteronomy 33.21 We cannot know whether the Holy One is the abode of the world or whether the world is His abode. It depends on where you're standing. Are you in Shemayim or are you on the world? It's relative to your position. From us, it seems like the world is His place. After all, He said, build me a house. But from His perspective, He's looking at the globe that He's holding and realizing that He's the place of the world. But on the earth, in our pathetic little view, this is what it looks like to us. So it says, From that which is written, O Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. We see that the Holy One is the abode of the world, and the world is not His abode. This is, the world is not His abode. You hear what I'm saying? The, say this with me. The world, the world is not is His, his abode. This is like a mighty mounted warrior whose armor and garments hang down around his horse. 
The horse is secondary to the rider. The rider is not secondary to the horse. This is that which is written, Oh, that you rode your steed with the chariots of salvation. Habakkuk 3.8. Now, Yeshua in Matthew 8.18-20 8, through 20, is approached by a Torah scholar. <coughs> Pardon me. And he says this. Now when Yeshua saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side of the sea. The Torah scholar came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Yeshua tells him, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What is he saying? Let's read it in the Hebrew, actually. Ana lo Yeshua. Leshualim yesh meiruot ul of Hashemayim kinim ach ben hadom ein lo makom lehaniak et de roshoo. The Mashiach is saying, I have no place. Makom. Why? Because I am the place. I will follow you wherever you go. You can't follow me wherever you go because you are in a place where there is a place, but I am the place of the place. <laughs> Therefore, the, taller, the Torah scholar asked to follow Yeshua to any place, but he is the place, which is why he said what he said. God is actually hidden in plain sight. Even though God is all places, it, this is the, excuse me, this comes from Marbe Lisaper, another rabbi writing on the Haggadah. And he says this, even though God is all places, God is still hidden. <laughs> this is expressed through the words, blessed is God. We can only comprehend God through God's actions. Through them, we can come to the realization that God is a creator. At the moment of revelation, however, God revealed himself as an elder sitting in the academy. What, is, what revelation he's talking about? The giving of the Torah. In response to this moment, we say, blessed is the one who gave the Torah to his people. Through that moment, we can comprehend a bit of God's essence. Then we say again, God is he, God. Since, even in the moment of revelation, God's true essence is hidden from us. In other words, we can only have a glimpse of who God is because of our position relative to who he is. So it continues and says, according to Kabbalistic interpretation, God is called makom, place, because the gematria of the word makom is 196, like the word paku, which means go out, because God caused Israel to go out from impurity and from Egypt. He's called makom like word. So this is likening to us the same action that he called to us, leave impurity. He himself has the gematria of that characteristic. You with me so far? Trying. All right. Let's stick with let's stick with relationship. I'm a, a couple more a couple more entries here. Hashem is called Makom because he stands with us. Back going back to relationship a little bit. Yaakov was 77 when he left his house and the and the well went before him. The well went before him. What well? All right, let me bring let me bring something back. Let me make it a bit more comfortable. People who are wondering, man, why did I come here today? 
Come on now. I'm trying to keep it. All right, here we go. What well is he talking about? I'm going to read from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized in the Moses and the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that, that accompanied them. And that rock was Messiah. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the desert. The Apostle Paul is writing and saying that this rock, this wellspring rock, traveled before them and that rock was Messiah. This, where did he get that? Did he make it up? God revealed it to him in the wilderness? No. That comes from Jewish teaching. So it says here, the well went before Yaakov, two days travel all the way to Beersheba, from Beersheba to Mount Moriah. Two days travel, what happened? The ark went before the people, what? Three days travel. Yes. Two days travel to Mount Moriah. When he reached there at midday, the Holy One encountered him there. Who encountered him there? Who met him there? The Holy One, Makom. And it says he arrived at the place, Genesis 28, 11. Why is the Holy One known as the place, Makom? Because in every place where the righteous stand, there the Holy One is found. As it says, wherever I allow my name to be mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. Exodus 20, 21. Now, where do we find this? In Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Now, let us read it in the Hebrew. Ki bekol makom. He says, where two or three are gathered, where? The place. Makom. In any place. Where's the place? Hashem. This is why you can be anywhere and be in Him, because He is the place. Wow. Baruch Hashem. All right. So, can I just, can I just, let me, let me just try to do this right here. The mystery of manifestation. All right. Everybody stretch. All right. Woo. Okay. Here we go. comes down to relationship. I'm telling you, if, you're, if, you don't, if you don't have a relationship, then all of our... And see, I have, I've, I've always disliked when people say it's not about religion, it's about relationship. I don't like that. Because those people who say that are very deep into religion. It, it, it's, that's bumper sticker theology. That's, that's something to get somebody in the door. That, that, that's a Black Friday doorbuster sale. It's not about religion, it's about relationship. You know, my wife was pointing out there was a church that she's familiar with. She's been there forever, 100,000 years. <laughs> we passed by the, I didn't, I didn't mean it like that. Since she graduated from high school last week. Ah. <laughs> it's relative, there's no time when you're in the light. Oh. Lighthearted joke. 
Oh, <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. So, anyway, this church has always been called something, something Baptist church. I mean, forever it's been this. And she pointed out, we drove past the other day, she's like, look at that. Now it's just something, something. They dropped the Baptist. They're still Baptist. But you've got to dig seven or eight pages on their website to find that fact, and it's in fine print at the bottom. So I don't like the whole, uh, it's not about religion. But no, it is about religion. Listen, we cannot, in our, in our Western mind, we like to have this or 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 this. Is it the hoopah or is it the relationship? If I have the relationship, do I need the hoopah? Yes. It's about both. We like to just turn, trade one in. No, it's not about that. But without relationship, it is just religion. That's the key factor we've got to hone in on that. So here's the problem with place. When we look at it, now this comes, by the way, what I'm about to read to you from is Sefer Haukukurim Maimar 217. Now this is what he's saying. Place, makom, is a term applied to the thing which surrounds bodies and bounds them. In other words, it's a physical thing. But we have an, in, an a, a, to make up a word, an in-physical God. An incorporeal thing cannot be said to be in place. Because the name place applies only to a thing which is filled by another body having dimensions which enters place and is surrounded by it. Hence, it cannot be said of God or of the other spiritual beings that they are in place, for they have not bodies having dimensions which can a place surround. But yet, his name is the place. <laughs> so he says, the Bible says in reference to this, behold the heaven and the heavens of heaven cannot contain you. Meaning that God does not need place to stand in. Such expressions as, I will dwell among the children of Israel, then it shall come to pass place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Now I want you, I'm trying to, Bezrat Hashem, trying to piece this together for all of us. Yaakov met God, Makom. But where did he meet him? He met the place at the place. This is all strategic. Because he is going to be, you could argue that Yaakov is like the chief of the patriarchs. The last shall be first. So he meets God at the place, but he's at a physical location. And yet he even puts up the stones and says, this now is the house of God. But God is not stone. But Yaakov had a revelation that he met the manifestation of God, as it were. He says here, God does not need a place to dwell in. The explanation is this. The revelation of God's glory takes place by means of a body that is visible to the senses like a fire or a pillar of cloud. Thus we read, and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of a mountain. And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, and the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. 
In other words, what this sage is saying is that God does not need a place, but yet he is the place, which means that in order to interact with us, he manifests as a place. In this case, he, mani in this case, he manifests as a pillar of fire or a, a cloud, or he manifests as a burning bush or as an angel in the middle of the bush. In other words, he manifests. His manifestation is not him, but that's how he interacts with us because he is the place and he doesn't need a place. But we cannot interact with that because we're on a different dimension. So since we mentioned the angel of Hashem, I don't have time to get into that. Let me just go here. <clears throat> Hold on a second. One more thing, one more thing. Stick with me. I know. It's not fair. All right. Baruch Hashem. I want y'all to get something out of this. If you walk away and you think, I don't know what in the world is going on, just know this. You need a, you need a relationship with Hashem. Okay? Let that be the baseline. So here is this. Talking about manifestation. Memtet. How many of you remember Memtet, right? It says here in the Zohar that Memtet is perfected and has given his master's name, yod Vave. And moreover, those who dominate in this world do so through him. And those who are prevented from ruling fall through him. They are all dependent upon the ladder. The ladder, remember the ladder of Jacob? They're dependent upon the ladder, which is Memtet, who is yod Vave. As it is written, and behold, Adonai stood above it. When he awoke, it is written, This is no other than the house of Elohim, and this is the gate of heaven. Pay, pay close attention right now. It says that this is. So, what did Yaakov say? When he saw the ladder, he met the place, he encountered the place, he pressed into the place. He had a relationship now with the place, had a big dream, saw the ladder, and now he's coming to this realization. That where he is is the house of Elohim, and not just that, but the gate of heaven. So the writer says, Assuredly, Memtet is the house of Elohim, and the gate through which one passes to come within, as it is written, Open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go in, and I will praise Yah, yud Hey, Telahim 118.19. And this is the gate to heaven, yod Hey vav Hey, Telahim 118.20. This is the gate to heaven, and all is one, which means that the gate of righteousness and the gate of Adonai and the gate of heaven are one, and that one is Memtet. And we know through past studies that Memtet is another name for the Mashiach. It says it. What does this mean? It means that when Yeshua stood up and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to Hashem but through what? The gate, me. No one can ascend. What's a ladder for? Ascending. No one can ascend to the Most High except through me. This is why relationship is important. Because unless you've come to the place and met him, unless you've come to that point and have relationship with him, the mitzvah keeping are powerful. Obviously, we endorse it. We encourage it. We teach it. We promote it. But without the ladder, without the gate, you're just at a brick wall. This is why we need relationship with the Most High God. 
And this is why even if we're sinning, it's good in the sense that it teaches us that there's a relationship to be restored and teshuva to be made. Now, as we say, what do we know? What do we know? Hashem, thank you for your word today. Hashem, help us to understand it and comprehend it on so many deep levels, Adonai, in Yeshua's name. Amen.